are again. Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. And again, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here to be with us. What do we do here? Well, this is the time where we open up our Bibles and we go through the Scriptures. And we've been studying through the book of Acts. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Been there for a while. Acts chapter 15. Now back in the day when those big bodied four-engine 747s were uh, in various airline fleets, um, you may have heard the story of a man who was doing a cross-country journey on sitting in seat 35A in one of those 747s. Um, somewhere flying from D.C. over to, to uh, L.A., somewhere around Kentucky, 35,000 feet cruising, the captain came on and said, folks, we've just a little small trouble, but engine number one has gone out. Uh, it's no big deal, but I'm afraid it's going to put us maybe 15, 20 minutes behind our landing. Um, but we'll, we'll get you there. We'll probably make up for it. Wouldn't you know it that about uh, an hour later, the captain came back on again and he said, uh, folks, uh, nothing to worry about here, but engine number two just went out. And uh, we're still going to try to make up some time, but it's going to put us back maybe 30 minutes, uh, our arrival time. About two, uh, hour and a half later, as they're flying over uh, Utah, the captain came on again, and this time there was a little bit of an edge in his voice, and he said, folks, um, I, I, nothing to panic about, but our third engine just went out, and um, you're probably going to miss some connections or whatever, because we're, gonna, we're probably going to be a good 40 minutes an hour late getting into L.A. And the guy in 35A turned to the guy in 35B and he says, man, if that fourth engine goes out, we're going to be up here all day. <laughs> now, you're very kind to chuckle. You've probably heard that many times before. But, but what if it were true? I mean, what if you're taking some commercial flight and, um, and something really did happen? Something very tragic happened. In fact, the plane you're flying in is going down. And the guy sitting in 35B, at, as well as everybody else, is the, the panic on their face. You can't miss it. And he looks at you sitting in 35A, and you had been reading your Bible for a while while you were flying, and he looks at you and says, I, 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 you must be religious. You must be a Christian. Do, can you tell me, when this thing goes down, how I can get to heaven? I don't know. What should I do? You've got eight minutes now, seven minutes before this thing crash lands. What do you tell the guy in 35B? This thing is going down. Your life might be over. His life might be over. And he's asking you. He's begging you with the look of panic on his face. I don't know how to get to heaven. Can you tell me, please? in the five minutes of my life, what would you tell him? What do you say? You see, that was the question. That was the issue that the early church was wrestling with in chapter 15 of Acts at this, what we call the Jerusalem Council. How does a person get to heaven? Let's remind ourselves, because we looked at it last week, chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. It reads this way. There were some men who came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren that unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, 
The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. We've got to tackle this issue. Some were saying you've got to follow after Judaism. After all, the Jehovah God, the God of the Old Testament, the one and only true living God, he was the, the God of, of Israel. You, you have to come under that system. You have to follow after the rites of Judaism, circumcision and obeying the law, and, and you don't get to heaven unless you do this. Well, they did go up to Jerusalem. The debate continued in verse 5 and 6. It said some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. I mean, these were born-again Christ followers, but they were steeped in Judaism. And, um, and they said, uh, it, it, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. Th this was a major issue. There was a major debate, a major um, growing dissension even. How does a person get to heaven? Well, unless you follow after Judaism, unless you perform under the, the, the dictates of the law of Moses, I, the Jews are saying, I don't think, I don't think you have a ch much of a choice, much of a chance. And they debate it. And it was prestigious people, Pharisees, so people who knew the, the Bible the, that they had at that time, the Old Testament law. Well, that's when Peter stood up, and it, we read in verse 7 through 9, after there was, had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Peter stands up and recalls the situation that had happened, we read in chapter 10, of the time that God kind of shoved him into a, a mission that he had nothing, he wanted nothing to do with. Go to uh, some Gentiles, some, some Roman soldiers nonetheless, a guy by the name of Cornelius, and tell him the good news of, about Jesus. Peter clearly sees that this was not some work of man. This was not out of human design. What Peter is saying here in these verses is, first of all, this was God's sovereign choice. You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that it was by my mouth that Gentiles would hear the gospel and believe. Peter's saying, God was actively involved in this. The last thing I wanted to do, Peter would say, would, was to go meet with these enemies of Judaism, the Romans. But God had me do it. He was pushing me that way. It was his choice. God was all over this. Second of all, he says God confirmed the reality, the legitimacy of what happened in Cornelius' house that day. God knew their heart, and God testified that they had gotten converted when the Holy Spirit descended upon them. He gave them the Holy Spirit. He knew, he knew their hearts. 
God was all over this thing, Peter said. I couldn't orchestrate that. They couldn't orchestrate that. God did that. And thirdly, Peter affirms, God makes no distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, between people. God willingly and sovereignly cleansed their heart by faith. And again, Peter would say, I had nothing to do with this. God just chose me to open my mouth and share the good news. Now, if you turn back to that story, and I invite you to do that, just back to chapter 10, um, to start with verse 36, just to refresh our memories about that whole incident, Acts chapter 10, starting with verse uh, 36, Peter, Peter goes to their house, and there they are, Gentile Roman centurion with his family, with the friends that he brought into his house. They're, they're sitting there waiting with bated breath. Uh, they had had a vision. God was going to send someone to tell them. And so they're saying, okay, Peter, give us the goods. What do you got to say? We'll listen to you. And so Peter opens his mouth. Verse 34, I certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him does what is right is welcome to him. And the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting with, from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things that he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God, verse 40, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, now not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people, to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And of him, all the prophets bore witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Wow, there it is. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. Peter was inspired. Two days before, he would have never said that. But there he was, moved by God to go to this home of this Gentile Roman centurion, share this good news with Jesus. And the text continues and says, while Peter was still speaking, the Spirit of God descended. These people got converted. They trusted in Christ. They believed what Peter had just spoken. They believed. The central message of Peter was Jesus Christ. He was the one who died. He, he hung on a cross. He rose from the dead. We're witnesses of that. We ate and drank with him. It's true. And everyone who believes that, believes in him, you, you get a free gift. You get the gift of your sins forgiven. You get the gift of eternal life. That was the central message. Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, Believe on him, and your sins are forgiven. And back in chapter 15, that is what, uh, that's what Peter is trying to communicate. These people heard the message, and they believed in him. You go back to verse 7 again. 
Peter stood up and said, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of this good news, the gospel, and believe it. Or verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. It was an amazing thought. It settled the issue. It says that um, Peter said in verse 10, 11, now therefore why do we put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He's basically saying, hey, hey Jews, let's come clean here. Those Old Testament laws, the Ten Commandments, and the 633 other commandments that are added. What liar is among us here in Jerusalem who have fulfilled those things perfectly? Well, no one did. Those laws God gave. And, of course, the Jewish people, if you go back there in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and the, and the law, they, God gives them this law, and the people said, yep, oh, yeah, everything you tell us, we'll do, God. And yet God had given them a whole set of commandments that he knew no one could fulfill. So why did he give all those commandments? Why was there this yoke, this burden placed on those people that they could never fulfill? For a simple reason, God is showing his holiness through the law. And he's saying, you've got to be as holy as I am. This is kind of what it looks like. And he showed that people, they were absolutely incapable to do it. The law showed people their sin and their need of a Savior. And so Peter is simply saying here, uh, we couldn't fulfill it. Uh, why would there be a yoke that we'd play, a burden that we'd place on them? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way, he says, in the same way that they were. Pure grace, free grace, all of grace. That was Peter's message. And then to back it up, verse 12 says, a little added punch, all the people kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were now relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter gives his little speech. Look, they put their faith in Jesus. He knows their heart. God knows their heart. They were converted. Holy Spirit came upon them. It was free. They got their sins forgiven. And then Paul and Barnabas get up and says, well, let's we're going to tell you some stories. Let me tell you some of the stories that we, we've seen God do. And they tell all these stories of these, these Gentile dogs, undeserving sinners. They're in Corinth and, and Athens and wherever it was they went who heard a message that Jesus died for their sins and rose again, the central message of the good news that they, the apostles preached. And they invited them to believe that message, just like Peter did at Cornelius' house. And when they did, God affirmed it and confirmed it with amazing signs and wonders. Marvelous conversions were taking place, and they're telling these stories, certainly wowing the people and silencing the objectors who had so vigorously said, no, 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 no. We have got to put people, we've we, we got to call them to obey the Old Testament law. 
in order to be saved. It was only the, the words of Peter, but the works of God through the signs and wonders that emphasized this is a free message of grace that God was imparting now to the Gentiles. Um, the Jerusalem Council, what we've just read in 2,000 years ago that took place, it, the, the impact, it, we're still feeling it today because we're still struggling with the same issues. Even today in the 21st century, the, 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 that, that clear, simple message of God's grace, that it's by grace alone, alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the old Reformation mantras, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that message is, can still be under attack today. We need clarity in that. And just like the early church needed clarity, when the Pharisees came and said, uh, I think we've got to call people to do something, perform some way, you just can't give them cheap grace, isn't that what it is? It's just not easy believism. No, no, no. You've got to call them to obey the Old Testament law. And those charges of cheap grace and easy believism are being hurled about today too. Now let's be very clear. A person is eternally saved. You got five minutes to tell that person. What are you going to tell them? A person is eternally saved, gets to heaven by faith alone in Christ alone. It's all of grace. There is nothing, nothing, nothing human beings do to contribute to it. So Paul would add things like Titus chapter 3, pretty clear, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's all of God, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life justified by grace that's a great theological word word justification it simply means god declares us to be right in his eyes he takes sinners who don't deserve it and he justifies us he, he declares us to be right in his eyes what a gift he said this in famous passage ephesians 2 8 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast about it. Lest anyone would point to themselves and said, well, I, I did this, or I, I certainly contributed here, or I, I, I've lived this correctly. Certainly that counts in God's estimation for something. No, it's free gift of his grace through faith or Romans chapter 4 verse 5 even I think makes it very clear but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is credited to him as righteousness to the one who does not work who does absolutely zip nothing but simply believes by faith 
Jesus said it this way in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but past tense at that moment, has passed out of death into life. There's a promise from Jesus. If you've heard the good news about Jesus and you put your trust in him, you believe in him, Jesus says, you have eternal life. And you've passed out of death, out of darkness. You've you've passed into life. Faith in Christ alone is the only means of receiving that free gift of eternal life. Now, what is faith? Sometimes I think we overcomplicate faith. Faith is simply that that conviction, that inner conviction, that persuasion that something is true. It's trustworthy. Yeah, I I believe that. that, I believe that to be true. It's it's that simple. There's no action involved when you simply believe something to be true. Ninety-eight times the word believe is used in the Gospel of John. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever accepts it to be true, believes in him, has everlasting life. And we can complicate the issue sometimes by saying, well, is it, is it a real faith? Is it a genuine faith? Did you, you know, let's not overcomplicate it. Faith is faith. I believe it to be true. Now, we can have a weak faith. We can have a, a stronger faith. We can have a growing faith. James in his epistle said, your weak faith can even shrivel up to a dead faith. In fact, didn't James say, faith without works is dead and it can't save you? That kind of faith? Well, you're in luck today because I don't have time to develop that passage. <laughs> oh, well, maybe I'm in luck today. I'm going to talk about it on our podcast on, uh, on Tuesday that whole James passage. I, I think it's one of the most misinterpreted passages in the scripture. What Peter has said, what the apostles have said all throughout the teaching of the book of Acts, Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again. Do you believe it to be true? Now, something else about faith, it does require that object. The, the very nature of the word believe or faith forces us to ask the question, well, faith in what? You know, hey, have faith, brother. Okay, <laughs> faith in what? What are we to believe? What is the object of our faith? What should we believe? To whom shall we believe? And again, all throughout the book of Acts, as we've been studying, the object of the faith of the message that was preached over and over by the apostles, by the disciples of Jesus, was this simple message. Jesus died. You, you put him to death. He rose again, and we're witnesses of that. Jesus told them before he ascended into heaven, guys, I, I want you to go into the world. I want you to be my witnesses. Go Jerusalem, go Judea, Samaria, go to the farthest, most part of the earth, and be my witnesses. Witnesses of what? That I died for your sins and rose again. The good news, the object of faith, is what Jesus has done. Now, there's a central passage in Scripture. We've talked about it many times throughout the years, but let's just, I'm going to walk through it real quickly. 
It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I've got it up there on the screen. But this is what Paul said about the good news, this good news message. He said, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. There it is. Let me tell you what the gospel is, the good news, which I preach to you, which you receive, which you stand, which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed it in vain. By the way, if you did a little study on what it means to believe in vain, that word vain, in chapter 15 in the context, it's used multiple times. But uh, what Paul will do, he's talking about ultimately the resurrection, and he's saying, look, here's what it means to believe in vain. If Jesus is still in the tomb, you believed in vain. He goes into chapter 15, and that's what he talks about. He said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our, our, our faith is worthless. We're still in our sins, he said. It would be a, oh, you might have strong belief in it, but the object of your faith is nothingness. He's still in the tomb, if, in fact, he has not been raised. But then he comes in verse 20 there in chapter 15, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those. Christ is alive. And now that secures and this, this good news message is now rock solid. And he goes on and says, the very thing I preach to you, the very thing that you have believed by which you're saved, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. There's the proof that he died. And he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul is very simple. Let me proclaim to you the good news by which you are saved. Christ died for your sins. We're born in this world as sinners. That sin nature has been passed on from our, our first parents. Adam, the sin, everyone born in this world is born separated from God in spiritual darkness and spiritual death. Our spirits have no life in them, in the spiritual life. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because our nature as we're born is sinful. And there's nothing we can do to correct that. There's nothing we can do to ameliorate the effects of sin, which is eternal separation from God. But the good news is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he rose again from the dead, which means everything he offered is real. The forgiveness of sins, eternal life, free gifts, that he did it all. That's what Paul is saying here. I make known to you the gospel. Here's the good news. This is, how, this is what a person must believe. Here's the object of your faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe what? He died for your sins. He paid them in full. He rose again triumphant. Now put your faith in him. He's offering you a free gift because he did all the work. Trust him. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was the central message. It's what the apostles preached in the book of Acts. It's what Peter preached in the home of Cornelius. He hung on a cross. He rose again. We are witnesses of this. And if you believe in him, you've got forgiveness of sins. But every time we put the emphasis off of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, 
we muddy the waters. We make it unclear. In fact, we pollute that message of free grace salvation. How do we do that? Well, just like the Pharisees and the believers in the Jerusalem church, they were well-meaning people. They were concerned for the glory of God. But they put onto people something that they had to do. And any time, listen folks, any time we add an I statement to how we get to heaven, we're messing with the good news. An I statement, like there's, there's tons of them. How about this one? A lot of phrases that we use that can confuse. Invite Christ into your heart. Hey, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I invited Christ into my heart. I did something. I invited Christ into my heart. Good grief. Going to heaven is not about what you do. <laughs> it's all about what Christ has done. Now, some of you are going to get to this in the next five minutes and think, oh, he's getting a little picky here. And I, I look, I'm probably overstating the point to make the point. But the point is, it's something you did, and going to heaven is not anything you do. So let's just avoid something like that. Or how about this one? Give your life to Christ. How do you know you'll go up in heaven? Well, I gave my life to Christ on June 3rd in 1997. Well, my friend, is that, if that's what you're trusted in, you're still going to hell. Because the fact of the matter is, God doesn't want your life. <laughs> he wants to give you His it's not about what we give to him. It's what he gives to us, the free gift of eternal life. It's an I statement. Or how about this one? Open your heart to Jesus. Open your heart to Jesus. When I was a little kid growing up in, in a Christian home in Sunday school, my mom was the Sunday school superintendent, so Marky had to sit on the front row. Uh, but there was a, a song we always used to sing in Sunday school. Um, Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. I don't remember. Uh, into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, come in to stay, come in today, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And there was a little cutout of a, a, a wood. Anybody sing that song when you're in Sunday school? Yeah. Well, there's a few saved people here. <laughs> I just destroyed my sermon, didn't I? <laughs> there was a cutout of a heart. Some guy had cut out a piece of wood, a piece of plywood, all painted red. And there was a little bolt, a little door in the middle of that heart with a little bolt. And little kids, we'd raise our hands, oh, I'll hold the heart today on that song. So we'd get up there and we'd hold that little heart standing there. And when we'd come, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, we'd unbolt that door. And there was Jesus inside, you know, come into my heart. We'd unbolt, there was little Jesus in there. Um, opening your heart <laughs> doesn't get you to heaven. Anything you do doesn't get you to heaven. It's what Jesus has done for you. Or this one, pray and receive Christ. Praying is something you do. Now, we can express faith and our trust through prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me. You're communicating to him. You're praying to him. And that's oftentimes what we mean. But I've heard it said in testimonies, when did you trust Christ? As how, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, on June 5th, 1995, I prayed a prayer 
and receive Christ. Well, my friend, if that's what you think you're trusting in to get you to heaven, you're going to hell. Now, I'm overstating the point to make the point. Do you see what I'm getting at? We need to make it clear. Let's use the verbiage that is in the scriptures. It's faith and faith alone. Here's another one. It's very popular. Make Christ Lord of your life. You need to turn from your sins. You need, to, you need to agree to God. You've got to commit every area of your life under Him. You need to surrender all things to Him. You've got to stop sinning. You've got to go in that direction now. Well, of course we do. But that doesn't get us to heaven. That's still something you do. You, you think an unsaved person can actually turn from their sin? I mean, we're believers, most of us here. Do we still struggle with sin? Well, then someone might question whether you're saved or not. Have you committed every area of your life under him, under the lordship of Christ? Have you ceased all sin? Well, if you haven't, by some people's estimation, you're not a genuine, true believer. Because that belief that I have to do something in my performance, it just, it just brings us back to 2,000 years ago and the Pharisees there who were believers, well-meaning, who said, you know, I think you have to obey the Old Testament law. Hey, I think you need to do this. I think, I think you need to stop that sin before you can get to heaven. You need to do something. And that's never what the Bible teaches. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. Faith alone in Christ alone because it's all of grace. And if that sounds like cheap grace or easy believism, you bet your bottom dollar it is. Because the last time I checked, grace is free. And it's pretty easy to believe. But it's really hard to be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. No, it's not about doing something, saying something, inviting something, opening something, committing to something, surrendering something. Salvation is always about trusting Jesus, that he was the one who performed, that he is the one who did it. Works can be so subtly inserted into that message of grace. We must make the issue trusting Christ alone. And what is the object of that? He died for our sins. He rose again. And to get to heaven and forgiveness of sins, he asks us to do nothing but believe in him. And anytime we add something to that faith message, we're resurrecting the problem that they dealt with 2,000 years ago. And we, we challenge Peter's message and Paul's message and Barnabas' message. The free gift of eternal life isn't free if God requires us to do something. Grace is not grace if we have to contribute something to prove that we really have true faith. The hope of eternal life is never assured if it depends on how we're performing. Think of that. If the assurance of eternal life your eternal life depends on how you're going to perform 10 years from now. Is there anybody here who has assurance that you'll get to heaven if it depended on your performance 10 years from now? 
How do you know how you're going to act 10 years from now? And by the way, normally I would judge you based on my standard. You know, if, if it's the things I'm not doing, then I'm going to judge you based on those. Of course, there, the problem with that is there's always someone who's better than me, and they'll be judging me based on their standard. They'll be questioning my salvation based on their standard. God bases our eternal salvation on one standard. Did his son pay for our sins? Did he say on the cross, it is finished? Or did he say almost until you do something? It is based on the performance of Jesus Christ and his promise that says, I love you so much, I died for your sin, and if you believe in me, you have everlasting life, period. Now, I, I hope you're get, some of you are getting sweaty palms because that can make us really uncomfortable because haven't you, Mark, just given people a license to get out of here and say, woo I'm going to heaven, I'm going to live like hell. <laughs> oh, go ahead and try that. A gift is a gift. God is not going to take the gift back. But I don't know what kind of home you grew up in, but I grew up in a home that was a godly home, and when I got out of line, I stood before my father, and Katie barred the doors when Don Carey got hold of Mark Carey. And he disciplined me. And the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter uh, 12 that whom the Lord loves, he's going to discipline. He'll take us to the woodshed. If you want to go ahead and live your life the way you think you want to live it, after trusting Christ as your Savior, you better think twice. Because not only does he do a spanking and a great job of it here on earth, do you realize that how you're going to serve him in eternity is based on your faithfulness right now in this life? And if you don't want to live for him now, folks, you're going to have awakening at the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible says every believer is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what he's done, whether good or bad. And our eternal rewards and, and our service to the king for all of eternity is based on that. Sadly, that's not oftentimes taught in churches. It's oftentimes taught either saved or you're not, and, or you lose your salvation, depending on how you perform. If you don't perform well, uh, you, you probably didn't have real faith. Ah, that's bogus. Oh, you were, you had real faith, but you, you're not measuring up to the standard. You lost your salvation. That's heretical. God gives a free gift at the moment of faith. But there's an eternity. And we will base our service to the king based on how we have faithfully served him and lived out a life of holiness here on earth. Well, I've got 35 seconds to wrap this up. Let me end by just going back to verse 9. Verse 9, what Peter said in his message, he said, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Cleansing their hearts by faith. When a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, a miracle takes place within. At the innermost being, at the very 
level of our spirit that was once dead, it's been brought to life by Jesus. He cleanses our hearts in that moment of faith. We become, Paul said, a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. He takes up residence in our life. He indwells us with his Holy Spirit. Our bodies, he said, become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are forever altered. We are forever changed, transformed from a condemned sinner, unworthy, undeserving, to a sinner saved by grace and dwelt with the power of the presence of God, a holy temple. We have been given forgiveness of sins and a cleansing that has taken place. How does that work? How does that cleansing take place? Because I sure don't feel cleansed. Well, here's a verse, Romans chapter 3. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the very righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. You realize that the moment you trust Christ, his righteousness is implanted in your, deep within you, in your identity. We put it this way. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who made, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. It was that divine transaction where our sin was placed on Jesus' account and his righteousness was placed to our account. It was the great exchange. Our sin that we should have been judged for, he is judged for because it comes to him. His righteousness comes to us so that the moment we trust Christ, that free gift is given to us so that God the Father looks upon undeserving sinners who will continue to sin and struggle, but he looks at us and he sees not our sin because it's been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Though they were as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And he sees us in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, and he says, I justify you. I declare you to be right. Do we deserve it? Of course not. But that's, that's why it's a gift. And that's why it's grace. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, He is looking upon you right now and He sees the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. He has acquitted you of all crimes. He has justified you. He has cleansed your heart for all of eternity. It says it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith and faith alone. The 